Chapter Twelve of Companionable Books by Henry Van Dyke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Twelve. An Adventurer in a Velvet Jacket. Thus gallantly he appears in my mind's eye when I pause in rereading one of his books and summon up a phantasm of the author, Robert Louis Stevenson, gentleman adventurer in life and letters, his brown eyes shining in a swarthy face his lean long enduring body adorned with a black velvet jacket this garment is no disguise but a symbol it is short so as not to impede him with entangling tails it is unconventional as a protest against the tyranny of fashion but it is a velvet mark you to match a certain niceness of choice and preference of beauty yes and probably a touch of bravura in all its wearers vagaries tis like the silver spurs broad sombrero and gay handkerchief of the thoroughbred cowboy not an element of the dandiacal but a tribute to romance strange that the most genuine of men usually have a bit of this in their composition your only incurable poiser being the fellow who affects never to pose and betrays himself by his attitude of scorn of course stevenson did not always wear this symbolic garment in fact, the only time I met him in the flesh, his clothes had a discouraging resemblance to those of the rest of us at the Authors Club in New York. And a few months ago, when I traced his footprints in the sands of time at Waikiki Beach, near Honolulu, the picture drawn for me by those who knew him when he passed that way was that of a lank, barefooted, bright-eyed, sun-browned man who daundered along the shore in white duck trousers and a shirt wide open at the neck but the velvet jacket was in his wardrobe you may be sure ready for fitting weather and occasion he wore it very likely when he went to beard the honolulu colorman who was trying to do his stepson-in-law in the matter of a bill for paints he put it on when he banqueted with his amiable but babulous friend king kalakaua you can follow it through many if not most of the photographs which he had taken from his twentieth to his forty-fourth and last year and in his style you can almost always feel it the touch of distinction the ease of a native elegance the assurance of a well-born wanderer in short the velvet jacket robert louis balfour stevenson began the adventure of his life in a decent little house in howard place edinburgh on november thirteenth eighteen fifty he completed it on the samoan island of upolu in the south seas december third eighteen ninety four completed it i think for though he left his work unfinished, he had arrived at the port of honor and the haven of happy rest. His father, and his father's father, were engineers connected with the board of Northern Lights. This sounds like being related to the Aurora Borealis, and indeed there was something of mystery and magic about Stevenson, as if an influence from that strange midnight dawn had entered his blood. But as a matter of fact, the family occupation was nothing more uncanny than that of building and maintaining lighthouses and beacons along the Scottish coast, a profession in which they won considerable renown, and to which the lad himself was originally assigned. He made a fair try at it, and even won a silver medal for an essay on improvements in lighthouses, but the calling did not suit him, and he said afterward that he gained little from it except properties for some possible romance or words to add to my vocabulary this lanky queer delicate headstrong boy was a dreamer of dreams and from youth desperately fond of writing he felt himself a predestinated author and like a true scot toiled diligently to make his calling and election sure 
but there was one thing for which he cared more than for writing and that was living he plunged into it eagerly with more zest than wisdom trying all the games that cities offer and learning some rather disenchanting lessons at a high price for in truth neither his physical nor as he later discovered his moral nature was suited to the sowing of wild oats his constitution was one of the frailest ever exposed to the biting winds and soaking mists of the north british boston early death seemed to be written in his horoscope but an indomitable spirit laughs at dismal predictions robert louis stevenson as he now called himself velvet jacketing his own name was not the man to be easily snuffed out by weak lungs or wild weather mocking at bloody jack he held fast to life with grim cheerful grotesque courage his mother his wife his trusty friends heartened him for the combat and he succeeded in having a wider experience and doing more work than falls to the lot of many men in rudely exuberant health to do this calls for a singular kind of bravery not inferior to nor unlike that of the good soldier who walks with death undismayed undoubtedly stevenson was born with a wanderlust my mistress was the open road and the bright eyes of danger ill health gave occasion and direction to many voyages and experiments some of which bettered him while others made him worse as a bachelor he roamed mountains afoot and travelled rivers in his own boat explored the purlieus and sublotorals of paris london and edinburgh lodged on the sea-coast of bohemia crossed the ocean as an emigrant and made himself vagrantly at home in california where he married the wife the great artificer had made for him they passed their honeymoon in a deserted miner's cabin and then lived around in scotland the engadine southern france bournemouth the adirondacks and on a schooner among the south sea islands bringing up at last in the pleasant haven of Vailima. on all these distant roads death pursued him and till the last ten years poverty was his companion yet he looked with keen and joyful eyes upon the changing face of the world and into its shadowy heart without trembling he kept his spirit unbroken his faith unquenched even when the lights burned low he counted life just a stuff to try the soul's strength on and educe the man he may have stumbled and sometimes fallen things may have looked black to him but he never gave up and in spite of frailties and burdens he travelled a long way upward through all his travels and tribulations he kept on writing 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 the very type of a migratory author he made his first appearance in a canoe the log of this journey an inland voyage on the french rivers published in eighteen seventy eight was a modest whimsical charming debut in literature in eighteen seventy nine he appeared again and this time with a quaint companion travels with a donkey in the savannas is one of the most delightful uninstructive descriptions of a journey ever written in english it contains no practical information but plenty of pleasure and profit i do not envy the reader who can finish it without loving that obstinate little mouse-coloured modestine and feeling that she is one of the best-drawn female characters of her race in fiction from this good quiet beginning his books followed rapidly and after treasure island that incomparable boy's book for men with growing popularity among the judicious the gentle readers who choose books not because they are recommended by professors or advertised in department stores but because they are really well written and worth reading it is difficult to classify stevenson's books perhaps just because they are migrants borderers 
Yet I think a rough grouping, at least of his significant works, may be made. There are five volumes of travels, six or seven volumes of short stories, nine longer novels or romances, three books of verse, three books of essays, one biography, and one study of South Sea politics. This long list lights up two vital points in the man, his industry and his versatility. A virtue and a vice, say you? Well, that may be as you choose to take it, reader. But if you say it in a sour and puritanical spirit, Stevenson will gaily contradict you, making light of what you praise and vaunting what you blame. Industry? Nonsense. Did he not write an apology for idlers? Yet unquestionably he was a toiler. His record proves it. Fleeing from one land to another to shake off his implacable enemy, camping briefly in strange places, often laid on his back by sickness, and sometimes told to move on by policeman punery, collecting his books by post, and correcting his proofs in bed, he made out to produce twenty-nine volumes in sixteen years, say eight thousand pages of three hundred words each, a thing manifestly impossible without a mort of work. But of this he thought less than of the fact that he did it, as a rule, cheerfully and with a high heart. Herein he came near to his own ideal of success, to be honest, to be kind, to earn a little, and to spend a little less, to make upon the whole a family happier for his presence, to renounce when that shall be necessary, and not to be embittered, to keep a few friends, but these without capitulation, above all, on the same grim condition, to keep friends with himself. Here is a task for all that a man has of fortitude and delicacy. Of his work I think he would have said that he stuck to it, first, because he needed the money that it brought in, and second, because he enjoyed it exceedingly. With this he would have smiled away the Puritan who wished to pat him on the back for industry. That he was versatile, turned from one subject to another, tried many forms of his art, and succeeded in some better than others, he would have admitted boldly, even before those critics who speak slightingly of versatility, as if it marks some inferiority in a writer, whereas they dislike it chiefly because it gives them extra trouble in putting him into his precise pigeonhole of classification. Stevenson would have referred these gentlemen to his masters, Scott and Thackeray, for a justification. His versatility was not that of a weathercock whirled about by every wind of literary fashion, but that of a well-mounted gun which can be turned towards any mark. He did not think that because he had struck a rich vein of prose storytelling, he must follow that lead until he had worked it or himself out. He was a prospector as well as a miner. He wished to roam about, to explore things, books and men, to see life vividly as it is, and then to write what he thought of it in any form that seemed to him fit, essay or story or verse. And this he did, thank God, without misgiving, and on the whole greatly to our benefit and enjoyment. I am writing now the things which make his books companionable. That is why I have begun with a thumbnail sketch of the man in the velvet jacket who lives in them, and in his four volumes of letters, the best English letters, it seems to me, since Lamb and Thackeray. That also is why I have not cared to interrupt this simple essay by telling which of his works strike me as comparative failures, and giving more or less convincing reasons why certain volumes in my collective edition are less worn than others. Tis of these others that I wish to speak, the volumes whose bindings are like a comfortable suit of old clothes, and on whose pages there are pencil marks like lovers' initials cut upon the bark of friendly trees. What charm keeps them alive and fresh, 
in an age when most books five years old are considered out of date and everything from the unspacious times of queen victoria is cordially damned what manner of virility is in them to evoke and to survive such a flood of stevensonia what qualities make them still welcome to so wide a range of readers young and old simple and learned yes even among that fair and capricious sex whose claim to be courted his earlier writings seem so lightly or prudently to neglect one over and above the attractions of his pervading personality i think the most obvious charm of stevenson's books lies in the clear vivid accurate and strong english in which they are written reading them is like watching a good golfer drive or putt the ball with clean strokes in which energy is never wanting and never wasted he does not foozle or lose his temper in a hazard or brandish his brassy like a war club there is a grace of freedom in his play which comes from practice and self-control stevenson describes as far as such a thing is possible the way in which he got his style all through my boyhood and youth says he i was known and pointed out for the pattern of an idler and yet i was always busy on my own private end which was to learn to write he traces with gusto and doubtless with as much accuracy as can be expected in a map drawn from memory the trails of early admiration which he followed towards this goal his list of authors whom i have imitated is most entertaining hazlitt lamb wordsworth sir thomas brown defoe hawthorne montagna baudelaire oberman in another essay on books which have influenced me he names the bible hamlet as you like it king lear the vicomte de braglone the pilgrim's progress leaves of grass herbert spencer's books lou's life of goethe the meditations of marcus aurelius the poems of wordsworth george meredith the egoist the essays of thoreau and hazlitt mitford's tales of old japan a strange catalogue but not incoherent if you remember that he is speaking now more of their effect upon his way of thinking than of their guidance in his manner of writing though in this also i reckon he learned something from them especially from the english bible besides the books which he read he carried about with him little blank books in which he jotted down the noteworthy in what he saw heard or imagined he learned also from penless authors composers without a manuscript masters of the viva voce style like robert the scotch gardener and john todd the shepherd when he saw a beggar on horseback he cared not where the horse came from he watched the rascal ride if an expression struck him for some conspicuous force some happy distinction he promptly annexed it because he understood it it was his in two separate essays each of which he calls a gossip he pays tribute to the bracing influence of old dumas and to the sweeping power and broad charm of walter scott a great romantic an idle child the type of easy writers but stevenson is of a totally different type though of a kindred spirit he is the best example in modern english of a careful writer he modelled and remodelled touched and retouched his work toiled tremendously the chapter on honolulu in the wrecker was rewritten ten times his essays for shribner's magazine passed through half a dozen revisions his end in view was to bring his language closer to life not to use the common language of life that he maintained was too diffuse too indiscriminate he wished to condense to distill to bring out the real vitality of language 
he was like sentimental tommy in barry's book willing to cogitate three hours to find the solitary word which would make the thing he had in mind stand out distinct and unmistakable what matter if his delay to finish his paper lost him the prize in the competition tommy's prize was the word when he heard that his work was crowned a willingness to be content with the wrong color to put up with the word which does not fit is the mark of inferior work for example the author of trilby wishing to describe a certain quick retentive look speaks of the painter's prehensile eye the adjective startles but it does not illuminate the prehensile quality belongs to tails rather than to eyes there is a modern school of writers fondly given to the cross-breeding of adjectives and nouns their idea of a vivid style is satisfied by taking a subject which belongs to one region of life and describing it in terms drawn from another thus if they write of music they use the language of painting if of painting they employ the terminology of music they give us pink songs of love purple roars of anger and gray dirges of despair or they describe the andante passages of a landscape and the minor key of a heroine's face this is the extravagance of a would-be pointed style which masks the incongruous for the brilliant stevenson may have had something to do with the effort to escape from the polished commonplace of an english which admitted no master earlier than addison or later than macaulay he may have been a leader in the hunting of the unexpected striking pungent word but for the excesses and absurdities of the school of writing in its decadence he had no liking he knew that if you are going to use striking words you must be all the more careful to make them hit the mark he sets forth his theory of style in an essay called a humble remonstrance it amounts to this first you shall have an idea a controlling thought then you shall set your words and sentences marching after it as soldiers follow their captain and if any turns back looks the other way fails to keep step you shall put him out of the ranks as a malingerer a deserter at heart the proper method of literature says he is by selection which is a kind of negative exaggeration but the positive exaggeration the forced epithet the violent phrase the hysterical paragraph he does not allow hence we feel at once a restraint and an intensity a poignancy and a delicacy in his style which make it vivid without ever becoming insane even when he describes insanity as he does in the merry men olala and dr jekyll and mr hyde his words are focused on the subject as with a burning glass they light it up they kindle it but they do not distort it now a style like this may have its occasional fatigues it may convey a sense of over-carefulness of a choice somewhat too meticulous to use a word which in itself illustrates my meaning but after all it has a certain charm especially in these days of slipshod straddling english you like to see a man put his foot down in the right place neither stumbling nor swaggering the assurance with which he treads may be the result of forethought and concentration but to you reading it gives a feeling of ease and confidence you follow him with pleasure because he knows where he is going and has taken pains to study the best way of getting there take a couple of illustrations from the early sketches which stevenson wrote to accompany a book of etchings in edinburgh hackwork you may call them but even hackwork can be done with a nice conscience here is the edinburgh climate the weather is raw and boisterous in winter shifty and ungenial in summer 
and a downright meteorological purgatory in spring. The delicate die early, and I, as a survivor among bleak winds and plumping rains, have been sometimes tempted to envy them their fate. Here is the Scottish love of home. One of the tall lands inhabited by a hundred families has crumbled and gone down. How many people all over the world, in London, Canada, New Zealand, could say with truth, the house I was born in fell last night? Now turn to a volume of short stories. Here is a Hebridean night in the Merry Men. Outside was a wonderful clear night of stars, with here and there a cloud still hanging, last stragglers of the tempest. It was near the top of the flood, and the merry men were roaring in the windless quiet. Here is a Sirocco in Spain. It came out of malarious lowlands and over several snowy sierras. The nerves of those on whom it blew were strung and jangled, their eyes smarted with the dust, their legs ached under the burden of their body, and the touch of one hand upon another grew to be odious. Now take an illustration from one of his very early essays, Notes on the Movements of Young Children, printed in 1874. Here are two very little girls learning to dance. In these two, particularly, the rhythm was sometimes broken by an excess of energy, as though the pleasure of the music in their light bodies could endure no longer the restraint of the regulated dance. These examples are purposely chosen from tranquil pages. There is nothing far-fetched or extraordinary about them. Yet I shall be sorry for you, reader, if you do not feel something rare and precious in a style like this, in which the object, however simple, is made alive with a touch, and stands before you as if you saw it for the first time. 2. To Sitala, teller of tales, was the name which the South Sea Islanders gave to Stevenson. And he liked it well. Beginning as an essayist, he turned more and more, as his life went on, to the art of prose fiction, as that in which he most desired to excel. It was in this field, indeed, that he made his greatest advance. His later essays do not surpass his earlier ones, as much as his later stories excel his first attempts. Here I conceive my reader objecting. Did not Treasure Island strike twelve early in the day? Is it not the best book of its kind in English? Yes, my fellow Stevensonian, it is all that you say and more. Of its kind it has no superior, so far as I know, in any language. But the man who wrote it wrote also books of a better kind, deeper, broader, more significant, and in writing these he showed, in spite of some relapses, a steadily growing power which promised to place him in the very highest rank of English novelists. The master of Ballantrae, maugre its defects of construction, has the inevitable atmosphere of fate and the unforgettable figures of the two brothers born rivals. The second part of David Balfour is not only a better romance, but also a better piece of character drawing than the first part. St. Ives, which was left unfinished, may have been little more than a regular sword-and-cloak story, more choicely written, perhaps, than is usual among the followers of Old Dumas, but Stevenson's other unfinished work, Weir of Hermiston, is the torso of a mighty and memorable work of art. It has the lines and texture of something great. Why, then, was it not finished? Ask death. Lorna Doone was written at forty-four years, The Scarlet Letter at forty-six, The Egoist at fifty-one, Tess of the Dubervilles at fifty-one. Stevenson died at forty-four. But consideration of what he might have done, and disputes about the insoluble question, 
should not hinder us from appraising his actual work as a teller of tales which do not lose their interest nor their charm he had a theory of the art of narration which he stated from time to time with considerable definiteness and inconsiderable variations it is not obligatory to believe that his stories were written on this theory it is more likely that he did the work first as he wanted to do it and then like a true scot reasoned out an explanation of why he had done it in just that way but even so his theory remains good as a comment on the things that he liked best in his own stories let us state it briefly his first point is that fiction does not and cannot compete with real life life has a vastly more varied interest because it is more complex fiction must not try to reproduce this complexity literally for that is manifestly impossible what the novelist has to do is to turn deliberately the other way and seek to hold you by simplifying and clarifying the material which life presents he wins not by trying to tell you everything but by telling you that which means most in the revelation of character and in the unfolding of the story of necessity he can deal only with a part of life and that chiefly on the dramatic side the dream side for a life in which the ordinary indispensable details of mere existence are omitted is after all more or less dreamlike therefore the storyteller must renounce the notion of making his story a literal transcript of even a single day of actual life and concentrate his attention upon those things which seem to him the most real in life the things that count now a man who takes this view of fiction if he excels at all will be sure to do so in the short story a form in which the art of omission is at a high premium here it seems to me stevenson is a master unsurpassed will o the mill a perfect idol markham a psychological tale in hawthorne's manner olala a love story of tragic beauty and dr jekyll and mr hyde in spite of its obvious moving picture artifice a parable of intense power stevenson said to graham balfour there are three ways of writing a story you may take a plot and fit characters to it or you may take characters and choose incidents and situations to develop it or lastly you may take a certain atmosphere and get actions and persons to express and realize it i'll give you an example the merry men there i began with the feeling of one of those islands on the west coast of scotland and i gradually developed the feeling with which that coast affected me this probably is somewhat the way in which hawthorne wrote the house of the seven gables yet i do not think that it is one of his best romances any more than i think the merry men one of stevenson's best short stories it is not memorable as a tale only the bits of description live the treasure of frankard light and airy as it is has more of that kind of reality which stevenson sought therefore it seems as if his third way of writing a story were not the best suited to his genius the second way that in which the plot links and unfolds the characters is the path on which he shows his best here the gentleman adventurer was at ease from the moment he set forth on it in treasure island he raised the dime novel to the level of a classic it has been charged against stevenson's stories that there are no women in them to this charge one might enter what the lawyers call a plea of confession and avoidance even were it true it would not necessarily be fatal it may well be doubted whether that primitive factor which psychologists call sex interest plays quite such a predominant perpetual all-absorbing part in real life as that which neurotic writers assign to it in their books but such a technical and it must be confessed somewhat perilous defense is not needed there are plenty of women in stevenson's books 
quite as many and quite as delightful and important as you will find in the ordinary run of life marjorie in will o the mill is more lovable than will himself olalla is the true heroine of the story which bears her name Cantriona and Miss Grant, in the second part of David Balfour, are girls of whom it would be an honor to be enamored. And I make no doubt that David, like Stevenson, was hard put to it to choose between them. Uma, in The Beach of Felisa, is a lovely insulated Eve. The two Kirsties in Weir of Hermiston, are creatures of intense and vivid womanhood. It would have been quite impossible for a writer, who had such a mother as Stevenson's, such a friend of youth as Miss Sitwell, and such a wife as Fanny Vandegrift, to ignore or slight the part which woman plays in human life. If he touches it with a certain respect and pudor, that also is in keeping with his character, the velvet jacket again. The second point in his theory of fiction is that in a well-told tale the threads of narrative should converge, now and then, in a scene which expresses, visibly and unforgettably, the very soul of the story. He instances Robinson Crusoe finding the footprint on the beach, and the pilgrim running from the city of destruction, with his fingers in his ears. There are many of these flash-of-lightning scenes in Stevenson's stories. The duel in The Master of Ballantrae, where the brothers face each other in the breathless winter midnight by the light of unwavering candles, and Mr. Henry cries to his tormentor, I will give you every advantage, for I think you are about to die. The flight across the heather in Kidnapped, when Davy lies down, forspent, and Alan Breck says, Very well, then, I'll carry ye. Whereupon Davy looks at the little man and springs up ashamed, crying, Lead on, I'll follow. The moment in Olala, when the Englishman comes to the beautiful Spanish mistress of the house with his bleeding hand to be bound up, and she, catching it swiftly to her lips, bites it to the bone. The dead form of Israel hands, lying huddled together on the clean bright sand at the bottom of the lagoon of treasure island such pictures imprint themselves on memory like seals the third point in stevenson's theory is that details should be reduced to a minimum in number and raised to a maximum in significance he wrote to henry james and the address of the letter is amusing how to escape from the besetting particularity of fiction roland approaches the house it has green doors and window blinds, and there was a scraper on the upper step. To hell with Roland and the scraper. Many a pious reader would say, thank you, for this accurate expression of his sentiments. But when Stevenson sets a detail in a story, you see at once that it cannot be spared. Will of the Mill, throwing back his head and shouting aloud to the stars, seems to see a momentary shock among them, and a diffusion of frosty lights pass from one to the other along the sky. When Markham has killed the antiquarian and stands in the old curiosity shop, musing on the eternity of a moment's deed, first one and then another, with every variety of pace and voice, one deep as the bell from a cathedral turret, another ringing on his treble notes the prelude of a waltz, the clocks begun to strike the hour of three in the afternoon. Turning over the bit of paper on which the black spot, the death notice of the pirates, has been scrawled with charcoal, Jim Hawkins finds it has been cut from the last page of a Bible, and on the other side he reads part of a verse from the last chapter of Revelation, without our dogs and murderers. There is no besotting particularity in such details as these. On the contrary, they illustrate the classic conception of a work of art in which every particular must be vitally connected with the general, 
and the perfection of the smallest part depends upon its relation to the perfect whole now this is precisely the quality and the charm of stevenson's stories short or long he omits the non-essential but his eye never misses the significant he does not waste your time and his own in describing the colored lights in the window of a chemist's shop where nothing is to happen or the quaint costume of a disagreeable woman who has no real part in the story that kind of realism of local color does not interest him but he is careful to let you know that alan breck wore a sword that was much too long for him that mr hyde was pale and dwarfish gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation and bore himself with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness that john silver could use his wooden leg as a terrible weapon that the kitchen of the cottage on eros was crammed with rare incongruous treasures from far away and that on a certain cold sunny morning the blackbird sung exceedingly sweet and loud about the house of durstir and there was a noise of the sea in all the chambers why these trivia why such an exact touch on these details because they count yet stevenson's tales and romances do not give at least to me the effect of over-elaboration of strain of conscious effort there's nothing affected and therefore nothing tedious in them they move they carry you along with them they are easy to read one does not wish to lay them down and take a rest there's an artifice in them of course but it is a thoroughly natural artifice as natural as a clean voice and a clear enunciation are to a well-bred gentleman he does not think about them he uses them in his habit as he lives to Sotala enjoys his work as a teller of tales he is at home in it his manner is his own it suits him he wears it without fear or misgiving the velvet jacket again three of stevenson as a moralist i hesitate to write because whatever is said on this point is almost certain to be misunderstood on one side are the puritans who frown at a preacher in a velvet jacket on the other side are the pagans who scoff at an artist who cares for morals yet surely there is a way between the two extremes where an artist man may follow his conscience with joy to deal justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with his god and having caught sight of that path though he may trace it but dimly and follow it stumblingly surely such a man may say to his fellows this is the good way let us walk in it not one of the great writers who have used the english language so far as i know has finished his career without wishing to moralize to teach something worth learning to stand in the pulpit of experience and give an honest message to the world stevenson was no exception to this rule he avowed the impulse frankly when he said to william archer i would rise from the dead to preach in his stories we look in vain for morals in the narrow sense proverbs printed in italics and tagged on to the tail like imitation oranges tied to a christmas tree the teaching of his fiction is like that of life diffused through the course of events and embodied in the development of characters but as the story unfolds we are never in doubt as to the feelings of the narrator his pity for the unfortunate his scorn for the mean the selfish the hypocritical his admiration for the brave the kind the loyal and cheerful servants of duty never at his lightest and gayest does he make us think of life as a silly farce nor at his sternest and saddest does he leave us disheartened having no hope and without god in the world behind the play there is a meaning and beyond the conflict there is a victory and underneath the uncertainties of doubt there is a foothold for faith 
I like what Stevenson wrote to an old preacher, his father's friend. Yes, my father was a distinctly religious man, but not a pious. His sentiments were tragic. He was a tragic thinker. Now, granted that life is tragic to the morrow, it seems the proper service of religion to make us accept and serve in that tragedy, as officers in that other and comparable one of war. Service is the word, active service in the military sense, and the religious man, I beg pardon, the pious man, is he who has a military joy in duty, not he who weeps over the wounded. This is the point of view from which Stevenson writes as a novelist. You can feel it even in a romance as romantic as Prince Otto, and in his essays where he speaks directly and in the first person, this way of taking life as an adventure for the valorous and faithful comes out yet more distinctly. The grace and vigor of his diction, the pointed quality of his style, the wit of his comment on men and books, add to the persuasiveness of his teaching. I can see no reason why morality should be drab and dull. It was not so in Stevenson's character, nor is it so in his books. That is one reason why they are companionable. There is nothing in it, the world, wrote he to a friend, but the moral side, but the great battle and the breathing times with their refreshments. I see no more and no less. And if you look again, it is not ugly, and it is filled with promise. End of chapter 12 And end of Companionable Books by Henry Van Dyke Read by Marianne Spiegel, Elmhurst, Illinois, July 2017